0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm here with Anna Koppelman. Hello. Hi, Boo. Hi. And um, Anna, as most of you know who listen to the podcast, she often will do these Ask Me Anything episodes with me whenever she can. She's great at it. She's a professional podcast person. And, um, you know, also... Basically my favorite person to talk to. Um, I got to start out. Well, first of all, thank you, everybody, for sending in great, great questions. Also, thank you. Uh, So many people sent me notes of condolence. My dad, Charles Koppelman, died five weeks ago. And uh, many people said they felt like they knew him from the way I have talked about him for years on this podcast and other podcasts, which uh, was wonderful to hear and not something I was aware of that I had um, made him a character in that way on the podcast. I loved my dad in a very deep uh, and profound way as everyone, probably in, in, you know, even people with challenging relationships, their, their parents, uh, that kind of love it's, it's primal and it is profound. I, w- I will say I didn't have uh a difficult relationship with my father i had an excellent uh, relationship with him we saw each other pretty much as the other was and we liked uh what we saw my dad shows up in every single thing i've ever written in some way not often not in the way that people when they watch the stuff think he's rarely it's rarely as direct and analog but his worldview, his approach absolutely shows up uh, in so many of the characters uh, that Levine and I write that I write. My father was someone with a gambler's heart. He was a brilliant person who was uneducated. And a lot of his life was spent trying to reconcile those things. And uh, I think that that lack of education, that lack of Uh, some kind of status being conferred upon him gave him as well as growing up very poor, gave him a kind of hunger. And, uh, that hunger was there right up, uh, until the end. Um, he was someone who loved to work. He loved to think he loved to sell. He loved to deal. He loved to con. And, um, he loved his family, my nieces and nephews and my children, his grandchildren. And, uh, I miss him a lot, but he gave me so much that he feels, it feels to me, you know, gave me so much emotionally that he feels present. You know, in the the New Yorker, I mean, New York Magazine uh, just had this whole thing about Nepo babies. And (laughs) my dad was in the music business and had uh, a great deal of success. Uh, That life is an up and down life. He was amazing at never letting anyone know that it was up and down, but it was. But he had great successes. And one thing i can tell you uh whenever someone who was raised not just with some privilege i've said a million times getting college paid for was i mean it's a gigantic game changer for people who have dream of a different kind of life um to not be burdened with loans it's it's a such a difference maker it's almost impossible to ar- ar- articulate but one thing that is is hard to um For most people, it's hard to understand, and I rarely see people who were raised um, by uh, powerful men. Uh, uh, I, I hardly ever see people talk about this, which is, yes, of course, just kind of meeting people along the way is helpful. Of course, knowing how halls of power work. But I'll say one of the biggest advantages is learning how to talk to power, learning how not to be frightened when you walk into a room that you know could could determine part of the direction of your future. And watching up close how somebody successful and powerful deals with failure and deals with success. It's like, yes, the connections is what most people connections are what most people focus on. And anyone who would say that that's meaningless is lying. Of course, mm-hmm. it's like people who say money doesn't matter or doesn't bring you happiness. It's like, listen, it's a lie perpetuated by people who have money so that people who don't, don't uh, kill them. But, of, but I will say, so of course, connections help a lot in all areas for all sorts of people. But equal to that is, and it's something my father, my father was incredibly open to me about when he was nervous about a meeting or confident about a situation. And I watched how he handled them. I would be in the rooms sometimes. I would hear him on the phone And yeah, those things end up getting into characters of mine, but they are also the kind of thing that allowed me and David to walk into rooms and look around and figure out who had the real power in the room and how to talk to that group of people and then shift it to talk to the next group of people. And, um, I got to tell my father how grateful I was about all that stuff. He was incredibly uh, proud, and he was very generous with his, in spirit, with his, with his words and his actions, as far as praising me and letting me know that he was proud of what I'd accomplished. And that was the case long ago. And I, I tell this foundational story, and it's true. When I was twenty nine, and I was having this crisis conscience about whether I could be a screenwriter. I was really nervous to go tell him, and uh, I go and I say, "Dad, Dad I, I have to have a conversation with you." Oh, yes, yeah, son. What do you want to talk about, Dad? <sighs> I don't know how to say this. I, I know we always thought I was going to be a businessman executive in the thing, and I, I just feel this calling. You know, I feel okay. What uh, What are you called to? I I just feel like I I want to write. And you know, and I probably thought I was going to quit. My job, turn everything upside, down. and he just looked at me and he went, "You want to write? Well, uh, write." <laughs> ah, sure. And uh, and that was it. You know. Later, he told me he was scared shitless about it, but he didn't let on that he was scared. And um, he just said, "Have you ever uh, written anything?" And you know, with the ADHD and all the rest of it, no, I could never finish anything. He was like, "Go and and write." And and the way he said it. And if he told my mom or my sisters that he was frightened, he didn't tell me. So much later, and uh, I think about him every day. I've I've always thought about him every day when he was alive. I think about him every day, and um, and there's one line in Billions that uh, people often assume Chuck Senior is based on my father. And he he isn't. We gave him the name, Charles, but he isn't. Uh, But there's, there's only one line, really, that my father said that we put in Chuck Sr.'s mouth. And it's one of the nicest things Chuck Sr. ever said. Somebody came up to my dad when Billions took off and said to him, oh, you must be proud of Brian. Like, you must finally be proud. Like, because you know, I, I guess uh, I wasn't going to lose my apartment, you know. And uh, my father said, "I'm always proud of him. I've always been proud of him, but na- now I'm happy for him." And I love that. Uh, and so Senior says that at one point on the show, and and uh, and I remember hearing that and and feeling like, yeah, that's somebody who's not looking at their child to because they want to be able to tell the world their child's successful or whatever. But someone who's looking at their kid, even though I was a grown-up, you know, and saying, Yeah, hey, look, I was proud when he was a good father. I was proud when he was uh, in, in a in a in a marriage to someone he loved. I'm proud that he works hard every day, but I'm happy for him that in this moment it's turning out well. And I thought that was a great spin on it. And I remember telling Levine, and we put it um in the show. So anyway, you know, my belief system is not such that I can say my father's listening from wherever he is. Uh, but um, uh, but I do think he lives on in me and an Anna and, in uh, uh, you know, anyone who knew him. And, uh, and I know that he would love that, uh, one of my favorite things to do in the world is be with my daughter, uh, on the podcast. So with that, let's get to your questions. Uh, and I'm happy to be back doing the podcast. I have some really great things coming up, uh, for the pod. I love having these conversations still. And so we're going to press on.
1: That was beautiful. Um, so our first question is also from somebody whose father is sick um, and they wrote, um, I've been a long admirer of yours, blah, blah, blah. Um, I began my aspirations to become a writer in 2019, shortly after officially setting aside the progress I made in becoming a basketball coach. Since the moment I decided to shift gears, I've had thousands of questions arise. I'd love to ask, but constantly lack the guts to, to actually email. No longer, given my father's recent diagnosis of kidney cancer and the immense empathy I have for you as you go through the worst times of your life, I have a question I must ask. When do you know if the emotional core of which you experience in real life spills into your writing too much, gets too personal? I am a generally private person, hence the appeal to this medium. I know damn well all of my best writing has a deeply personal emotional core. When do you know if something is too personal to be shared, too tender to be explored alongside anyone who dares to read your shit? Or do you just lean all in, no holds barred? I truly thank you for being a, a primary inspiration in the whole screenwriting thing. I'm crazy enough to embark on.
0: No holds barred. Just for the record, barred. that's what that Sorry. is. Otherwise, Probably, good job. They wrote too. i I'm sure they wrote no holds barred. Um, <laughs> uh, what uh, does the person give their name? Sam. Okay. Hi, Sam. I do not think that a writer should worry about being too personal in their work especially not in early drafts or before people read their work or grapple with their work in some way i think over the process of doing drafts what happens is that that stuff becomes absorbed Uh, david levine once gave me one of the as he often does gave me just an incredible like lesson about this stuff a really long time ago when he was embarking. I guess he'd written maybe his first his first novel. And he said, it's wild when you're writing a novel. Suddenly, when you're really into it, every single thing that happens to you that you notice, that you go through, ends up finding its way into the novel, into the world of the novel. And I think in the work that I like best, like even work that, doesn't purport to be happening here or in this timeline, or that's playing with reality. When when the reader uh, or the viewer feels that the writer or the maker of the work cares, like I was watching The Fablemans this week with Amy, and I loved it so much. And it's so personal. And I'm sure that in various drafts, Spielberg and Kushner dialed some stuff back and dialed some stuff up. But I think you have to be willing to expose the parts of yourself that are scary to expose. Because what I hear in that question is really just a version of the fear that all writers have. What if I'm seen and if I'm seen and I'm not liked? What does that say about who I am? And that causes us sometimes to put our guard up in a way that maybe we tell ourselves, well, I'm going to be more professional. But in fact, what that does is make the work have less impact. So I would say press on. And also, I am terribly sorry that you're going through this. I'm sorry that your family is going through it. And I send you my absolute best wishes and love. Uh, and I would say, spend as much time together as you can. Over the last five and a half months, I made sure to spend as much time with my dad as I could. I would went out every single weekend, both days. I drove, and uh, you know, there are days you don't feel like it. There are days you want to go somewhere else. There's days you want to do something else. There's and you just get in the car and you drive there and uh some days it's miserable but the reward of of that at the end is really a great one and um so i would encourage that as well feel free to follow up with me sam uh to talk about any of it even
1: So speaking of creative partners, uh, David, and then also your relationship with your dad, somebody wrote in and asked, since you are part of a lifelong creative duo, who are the other creative partnerships you've seen that are as productive and meaningful as yours?
0: It's so hard to understand how anybody's long-term partnership works. It's like trying to understand how to have a good marriage by looking at someone else's marriage. <laughs> I don't know that any of that, like... um, Works. I mean, look. The obviously Joel and Ethan Cohen were. Dave and I always used to say, we are like brothers without any of the downside of having actually been raised in the same house. Mm. So we don't have any of the like brother kind of rivalry stuff, you know. Um, but for sure, the Cohen brothers and everything we've ever heard about how they work and the interactions we've had with each of them makes me think theirs has been even though they're working separately a bit now but that theirs has been this incredible incredibly effective and and beautiful partnership that's produced some of my favorite work of all time you know i i always admired how eddie and alex van halen worked together in van halen um though their relationship didn't always work for uh, everybody else but it seemed they always had each other's back and, um Alex recognized how special Eddie was, and Eddie recognized how special uh, uh, Alex was. So those are two brother combinations. But and I think you I, I think I probably look to music. Oh, I'd say Ron Howard and Brian Grazer, you know, they clearly have the ability to recognize each other's strengths to support each other, and to, pride each other on and otherwise maybe maybe I would look more to bands. I don't think I I, I never studied it or thought about it in, that, in, in a way where it was like I wanted to take lessons where I wanted to. Like the cones made Dave and I know, oh, it's possible to do this, to be like creative partners for a very, very long time. And, you know, our friends, Dan Weiss and David Benioff are a, a, a great duo and there are many others, but for us, it was just like our friendship was, and our shared enthusiasm led us to doing this work. And, and, um, and it's really never been in question the whole time. It's always just been a joyous creative collaboration. And, you know, he's like, uh, I mean, my kids call him uncle, so.
1: Yeah, I mean, how did you know that you wanted to start writing with him?
0: Well, Dave was so generous with his like knowledge, you know, and we were always just talking about books and movies and writing and stuff. And then when I had the crisis of conscience and I decided I had to do it, I remember going down to where he was tending bar and he said, I'll write a script with you. And, um, and I was like, yes, great. Let's do that. And, you know, then I walked into the poker club and figured out what we should write it about originally. And then he immediately was like, okay, that setting is great. Now who are the characters? Now why? And then we were just in it, you know, and it wasn't like we said, okay, we're going to, it wasn't. As though we said right then, we're going to be a creative partnership forever. This is important. Oh, that's a really good question, to Anna, because all we at the beginning said was like, let's write a script together. Let's see how that goes. We're going to be lifelong. Be- we are lifelong best friends anyway. We knew then. But the writing of that, the way we approached it, how seriously we approached it, um, how effective we were together. And then each of us, you know we've grown together. I guess you could not, but we did. We grew together. We never stopped each of us trying to improve. I think we both looked to the ourselves, like I look to myself, or Dave looks to himself to make it all work. So we wrote the first script and then went through that process and decided, you know, David had a manager. He had just gotten a manager, and the manager said, am I selling this as you Dave or as like, meaning I know you wrote it with your partner, but with a partner, but as I go to the town and say, there's this writer. And he said, no, it's the two of us. And and that was it. We were, we were, um, which really was, I was so happy about because I really wanted to live up to it and, and be able to do it. And, um, and yeah, then we just took off, you know, the ideas, we were very good at telling each other the truth in a way that wasn't brutal. And, uh, that was useful, and um, we made each other better. I mean, Dave certainly made me better. Uh, I'm not going to say I made him better, but 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 he certainly made me better. And 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 as a group, as a unit, we certainly got better and better.
1: Okay, my question is about the nature of artistic talent. Do you believe that talent in the arts is objective, as opposed to taste, which is subjective? Oh,
0: I have spent. I mean, I've spent years and years and years thinking about this question. And then they
1: they added at the end, it's just um, to be clear, I do not believe there's a correlation between an artist's talent and their level of success and popularity and fame.
0: Just yeah, I love it. I love the whole thing. Um, Where I ended up getting to is it doesn't matter because the only way to find out if the talent is there is to do the work. And so, yes. I think Paul Thomas Anderson sees the world a certain way. Nicole Holoff Center hears the world a certain way. But then those people had to put in like all this time and 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 effort and focus and uh, rigor to become masters of the craft, you know? And so if you're setting out to do any of this stuff, nobody told, like I always knew I had a that I could write a paragraph that was a good paragraph. Like I knew I could write sentences that were kind of like, that would have an impact, but I never had one professor say to me, you should be a writer. Like not one teacher, you know, I mean, you, you know, and if you listen to podcasts, you know, I struggled a lot in school because of the ADHD, but there were teachers who said, you're very smart. There were teachers who said, you know, you're a lot of positive things. But nobody ever said to me, you know, you're going to be, you're the kind of person who should be telling stories for a living. So I, I don't, you know, I don't, it wasn't like I had a talent that was obvious in seventh or eighth grade. Yes, I had a lot of verbal dexterity and I was smart, but I wasn't like, there were plenty of people around me who were more dazzling, you know, so, but like I showed up and worked on it and uh didn't stop. And then whatever talent I had came forth, I think.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. What do you
0: think, An- What do you think, Anna?
1: No, I think you're right that you don't really know unless you're doing the work to figure it out. And also like I don't know, from watching people Sam and I have grown up around, sometimes being told that you're super talented very early on can actually be a detriment because Nobody is going to be as good as the art they love when they start, and so if you think that you're supposed to be, it can stop you from writing.
0: Yeah, I look at, I mean, yeah, that's perfectly said. I look at Dan Soder, and like when he had his special at the same time Gulman did, like Gulman was such an obvious talent as a writer, a comedy writer, and Dan was funny as hell, but it was not obvious that of those group that of that group of people who Dan was coming up with that. He would be a person who broke through the way that he did. It, it became apparent because he got so fucking funny, but that's because he did more sets than anybody I've ever seen in my life. Like Dan yes. did, he would show up and do check spots. And there was another guy, Dan and I have talked about this. There was a guy who did stand up when Dan and I were in the clubs. And that guy was funnier than Dan. If you just were like, say something funny about this um, plant, that dude would say five things and Dan and I would fall to the floor. And Dan was funny. Like you could tell he was professional funny, but that dude was funnier. But that guy had like responsibilities, life, and just also for whatever reason could do what Dan did, which was Dan came to New York, worked double shifts at restaurants, you know, would do breakfast and lunch or do the lunch shift and then the early dinner. shift, And then he would just go out and do, uh, you know, as many, he would do 25, six sets in a week. And whatever the spark of talent that was in him, he just maximized it to where now he sells out all over the country and gets to make specials that people love. So, uh, you know, I love pointing to him as Yes, it's not that he was untalented. Obviously, Dan was very talented, but there were people around us who had a more obvious spark of talent. Where if you had just walked in on a random night when they were at the same level of experience, you would have been like, "Well, that dude's the one who's going to make it." Um, do you think Dan was the one?
1: Ask about if talent is innate. They're really asking how do you believe that you have the talent because the ability to go twenty six times a week—that's believing that if you do, there's this end goal you can achieve. So maybe it's where, where does that belief come from?
0: Well, is it that, is it, is it, is it that, or is it, I have to do this, I'm compelled to do this. I don't want to do anything else. I wanna get as good at this as I can possibly get. And I'm gonna give everything to see if I can be that person. Like Dan thought about comedy 24 hours a day. He watched stand-ups 24 hours a day. He breathed it. It was what mattered to him more than anything else. Like the success part, yes, he wanted that, of course. And yes, the yeah, you try to justify it somehow by saying, I have some talent. But a lot of the time, it's more about the love. I'm
1: mm-hmm. not
0: saying that in like a kumbaya way. Like I loved the work of David Mamet and the cones and Scorsese and Woody and all these people so much, Coppola, whatever. I don't want to list, you know, Tarantino, all the people I loved so much, Spike Lee. And like, I loved the idea of these people who played poker and I loved words, you know, I would sit around and, and read word books all the time. Like I would read, like I hated William F. Buckley's politics and everything about him, but he wrote these amazing books about words and I would buy them and I would study them and read them, not study them to learn for some tests, I just wanted to like play with the words in my head. Like it was really and I memorized movies. Like I would watch stripes over and over and over and memorize it. I would watch do the right thing over and over again and memorize it. And so, like, you know, she's got to have it. so I loved it so much. That's ultimately I was like, I have to try to do this thing that I love. And then yeah, you hope. I've said this many times. Like when you want to be an artist, you're delusional right up until the moment that you become that somebody else says. Oh yeah, this has merit. Like that's part of it, right? Is being delusional because it's not like on a sports team or something where, where along the way you're, you're, you're picked. Hmm. Uh, in fact, in fact, you know, Anna, I directed a play in high school, I acted in play, but none of that felt serious or real. I never thought it was possible that this could be my life because I wasn't singled out. I guess it was in a way I was like, I got to direct this play. One kid gets picked. And I got in stuff, but I wasn't singled out in the way where it was, like, in any way predestined. But I had a burning desire to do it. The desire was, like, I have to tell stories. I have to become a writer. I have to make movie. I have to find a way. And so I just, what David said about doing that work. Mm. And yeah. some nights it was scary. You know, some nights you're like, am I cra-? I mean... Everyone who does this asks themselves that they're insane all the time. You're always halfway through something. And you're like, why would anyone be interested in this? You know, all the time. That goes back to the personal question. You're like, why is it, you know, in 1996 when, or whatever, it was like, there were no poker movies, like House of Games had come out, whatever, 10 years before there were no poker movies. Poker wasn't on television at all. There was no poker on TV. Once a year, there would be one night of the world series, but it was nothing. Uh, But I don't know. We were obsessed with it. So it was like, well, we have to tell this story that we're obsessed with. And then somehow that obsession, you know, you you can wonder, like, is anyone going to care? But then you're like, well, if I care this much, maybe someone's going to care.
1: So somebody wrote in and asked, Fave Art of 2022, I'm roughly 20 years younger than you, but we view music slash newbie slash TV. So similarly, it's constantly surprising to me. Also, any band from the 80s that you love that you feel is forgotten and younger people should check out?
0: I think my favorite movie though of 2022, though I, I'm not like looking at lists right now, but I think it's Fableman's. And I deem the artist. White Trash Rivalry is the best album of 2022, uh, or and I could say for sure that Judas by Adem, the artist, is top five song of 2022. Yeah. Uh, it's just incredible. My favorite concert of 2022 was uh, a concert. Anna, Anna broke my heart by not coming with me too. So her brother. Sorry, I
1: got my appendix out.
0: Um, yeah, Anna was stuck in a foreign country getting her appendix out, and, and so it's Sam. Fun for all. Sam suffered, but I will say, like at that concert when he played, Jason played Elephant, and my dad was sick. I gotta say that was one of the real artistic uh, high points. I mean, I just fell apart. I just was falling apart at that at that (laughs) concert in New York, uh, New York City. Um, (laughs) Yeah, there there are definitely other pieces of um, art that really mattered to me this year. Seeing Amy Mann live at City Winery was incredible. Seeing You know, one of my very favorite songwriters, Slade Cleaves, he's been on the podcast. He and I wrote a song together and he played it also at City Winery. And it's going to be on his upcoming album. That was pretty amazing um, moment for for me this year, as far as something in art that was like kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Adim, the artist, go check that record out. It's incredible. They are uh, an amazing singer songwriter.
1: Yeah, those are all great. So going Speaking of music, going back to your career in the music industry, somebody asked, I'll ask a question out of all the bands and artists you signed, what is the one thing you regret not doing for that one artist that you feel you could have really changed their future?
0: I know who asked this question.
1: To to pair with that question. um, Somebody else wrote in and said, when I had the great Michael McDermott on my show, we talked a bunch about you discovering him and it got me thinking about artists like Michael who are incredibly brilliant and talented, but for some reason just never blew up as they should. So my question is, um, have you heard any artists or albums that you love that you would want to give a shout out to that you think are falling between the cracks in the music
0: industry? Well, let me say about Michael McDermott. Um, You should read, go get his book, Scars from Another Life, where he talks about the whole course of his career and you know he's landed in a wonderful place now, where he's really able to make a living playing his music. He has pockets of incredible popularity in different spots around the world, and um, I'm so happy for him that that he has found uh, a loyal uh, audience and is able to to do the work because I do love the albums that we made together so much uh, in the in the late '80s, early '90s, um, and I love him uh, as you know, Anna, uh, still. Family to us. Definitely.
1: Um,
0: as to the other question, which I know who asked that question. Hi, Mark, not the other Mark, but hi, Mark. Um, it's always the same thing. Yeah. What the thought that I have in my head about any artist that I worked with who we weren't able to get across the finish line in the way I wish we could was uh, I wish I would have found a way to communicate to the promotion and sales staff better why the artist mattered. And why the artist could break through. It was something my father was incredibly skilled at. It's one of the reasons I left the record business when I did, you know, obviously because I wanted to do this other thing. But also being right at the intersection of commerce and art was sucky for me. I loved the artist so much, and I would allow my emotional, my emotional response to sales and promotion people who would tell me that it was difficult. People who are better at the job, than I was would go back and strategize, okay, how do I help them break through? And I did that, but not enough. I think I would more react emotionally wounded for the artist. That's one thing. and another thing is sometimes I think the best A and R people are able to push the artist to deliver something, that can help cross them over. And um, I, again, sometimes could do that and would try to do that, but often in the end, I would defer. I'm glad I would defer, but perhaps sometimes it would have been better for the artist long-term if I would have stuck to my guns more about what I thought needed to happen creatively. But that's also part of why I had to like split from that gig and go be the person doing the thing creatively. Did you ask the question for my friend, Mark Lucero yet?
1: I haven't, but I can do that now.
0: I want to make sure we get to it. I saw he asked something, but I don't know what he asked.
1: Um, Oh, no, this is what it is. Um, Brian, can you revisit the look in the mirror moment you had in your career and maybe talk about the waiting part between when you put your work on paper and when you get the yes you are looking for from people buying it? How do you get your mind right? to wait to find the right thing when you feel this pressure driven by insecurity, maybe, or a sense of being unmoored that you just need anything, both for validation and self preservation that in normal times you don't need.
0: Both for validation. And what was the other word?
1: Self-preservation.
0: Okay. Yes. Like the gap is painful. All you can do in the gap is do more work. Like I remember David and I started on the next screenplay when Rounders was out there getting rejected in the beginning. We were already at work on the next thing, so that was big because when you're already, or like the weekend rounders open and didn't do that well, we were already, we were that weekend that rounders open. We Friday night we stayed here and went to theaters, and then Saturday morning we got on a plane and we went to Montana to research Knockaround Guys. There wasn't Knockaround Guys. We hadn't set up the movie, sold it, sold a pitch. We were just on it like because we were like, well, if Rounders is a success or failure. That doesn't matter. We're doing this now, and we went and tried to figure out the next thing. And yeah, having patience, saying no, Mark, is really important because I'm hearing a few different things. You're. It seems to me you're asking a couple different things because, one, it feels like you're saying how do you how do you stay hopeful, but the other it feels like you're saying how do you stay patient and not just jump at the wrong opportunity. And um, Mark Lucero is a great coach in tennis. He coaches a one of the best American players. He was a great tennis player, uh, still is a great tennis player. He was a professional, and he's got a really wonderful podcast that you should check out too. He's just a great guy. and uh, been very helpful to me. So I would also say, Mark, let's get on the phone and chop it up about this. But as far as making it useful for everybody, standards. like you, and, and at various times in my own career, I definitely like, to my own detriment, lowered those standards for uh, because I needed a paycheck. And look, sometimes you need a paycheck. Yeah. Um, but for me, the problem was if I took a job where I knew I couldn't kill it, it long-term, it, it, hurt, it would hurt me because then, as opposed to just waiting for the right job where I knew, okay, I know exactly what to do with this script. I know this is in my wheelhouse. So at a certain point, um, Levine and I just made the decision we were going to say no all the time if the thing didn't, you know, long before we were very successful. And that was really helpful to us. And then, and then along with that, something Quentin talks about, which is live below your means. If you can live below your means, I had someone come over to our apartment the other day and they couldn't believe that we were still living in our very nice apartment that we've lived in for over 20 years. Um, man, along the way, the apartment was nicer than we could afford probably. And then, but not really like we could, and now it's, you know, maybe seems from the outside, like, well, why haven't you stepped it up? Um, and I do think mostly trying to live below your means, if you want to take risks or take steps or make progress is really important.
1: Yeah. This next question I think feeds into that really well. Um, Someone wrote in and said, I'm so sorry to hear about the loss of your father. I'm a college senior at an East Coast liberal school, not majoring in film, but still hoping to write or more accurately see my work produced. My question is, what would you tell a senior with one semester left of school to do in preparation for graduating if they hope to have a career as a screenwriter? Tips, advice or anything else would be super appreciated.
0: I mean, this is lame advice, but Anna knows it's the truth. Like you just, first of all, you just got to do that work. Like if you want to be a screenwriter, find a way to write an undeniable script. That may mean writing seven scripts. That may mean writing the next script. That may mean watching a ton of movies. I'd say that's something practical, which is you really, the language of the arts is the arts. That's the lingua franca. So watch movies and read screenplays and, and, and do the work.
1: Somebody else asked if um, it's better to watch or read a screen, screenplay if you're trying to write. Is there, los, is there los,
0: one that's better? Los dose. do both, do both things. Like this has to be, I would say like, it's a pretty all, because the fun, because, the, because it is so hard to break through in the arts. So many people want to do it. I think it needs to be all-encompassing. You know, and so that's that's my advice. Like dive in fully. Take get a job, of course, if you need a job, you know, to pay your bills, but dive in. Do the work. Know it's going to be tough at times. Surround yourself with people who are interested in this too immerse yourself, you know, immerse yourself.
1: Are you going to tell them to read the artist's way and do morning pages?
0: Well, it sounds like they're working, so they don't need to, but everyone should read the artist's way. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone Um, should do morning pages. Want to do two more? One more.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's one question we have to ask before the end of this, uh, which is, do you miss camp Tomahawk?
0: Oh boy. So uh, someone asked this question. Someone I like, um, and Camp Tomahawk was a boys' camp. Sister camp was called Waikasuda. And I've no. The answer is no. I don't. I don't miss Tomahawk. I, I fucking hated sleepaway camp. Uh, I could never. Can you fit tell in the
1: serial in? story?
0: I could never. Oh yeah, this guy named Greg, this counselor. He, he wouldn't let me leave. I, I had never had grape nuts before and I didn't realize how dense they were. And I poured a bowl of grape nuts, not even a big bowl. Just, I couldn't finish it. And he was like, don't waste. And I was like, "What, wow, dude, I'm so full. My stomach's sick. And he was like, you're going to sit here until there's no grape nuts left. And like, I really thought I was going to like lose my life. Lo- and I, I had to sit there for like two fucking hours um, <laughs> after breakfast and missed morning activity uh, until I won the battle of wills and finally gave up. So, Greg, wherever you are, go fuck yourself. Um, <laughs> though actually, I think he was, and now, if I think about it, he was an I mean, obviously his father raised him that way. He was not a privileged person, and it was a camp of probably people who were more privileged. and he was trying to give a good lesson, but at the time it was the wrong approach to me at eight years old. How no did you I, eight I, years I, old? I I will say this. there were a few campers who were nice to me, even though I didn't fit in. My interests were so different. I love sports, but my interests were so different other than like when we were actually playing sports from everybody else's interests. And, um, the way I looked at the world was so different. I was felt like such an outsider. I could not get along with people. I hadn't found my tribe there. And, um, a couple of people were nice. One of whom I'm still in touch with a great guy named Andy Petrikoff, uh, who was like the best athlete and was super nice to me always, even when it was difficult. And there was another guy I've looked for for years because he was the last year I was there. Um, i had come back to the camp because I wanted to try to like, end on a good note, i had left for a couple of years and I went back and it was better. Um, but there was a guy named Arthur Stein, who was from Scarsdale, New York. I've looked for him and I can't find him to say thanks. Cause he was like a year older, but he was still in our bunk. And he was also incredible at sports, but he was geeky in a way that, um, I mean, he was tall and everything like that, taller than I was, and he was great at sports, but he was, um, a ham radio operator and also good with other kinds of radio. And he would talk to me and he was the only person there I could really like talk to. And i real, and he, he didn't have to spend time with me, but he did. And, uh, I, I was always really, um, uh, grateful to him for uh, being an actual a uh, friend to me, and so yeah, hey Arthur, if you or your brother Brian are out there, find me, man, and uh, say hi. I've tried to I've tried to reach you uh, to say thanks, but otherwise no. Um, and I, I I went to sometimes, Annie, you've been with me when someone from tomahawk will come up to me, and they'll be like, "I was great friends with your dad when we were kids. I love your movies." And uh, I'm always nice because I know, look, they were kids too. Like, I'm so aware they were 12 and I was 12. But sometimes I'm going to walk away and I'll be like, that fucker tortured me. Yep. Uh, that guy tried to give me a purple nurple and hang me from the flagpole. And now he's like, oh, I was your friend. Yeah, of course. Uh, like, dude, you weren't my fucking friend. Um, but now it's like, I know, I understand. I, I understand what happened in the world. Um, And so <laughs> I have grace and forgiveness. But deep, deep down, fuck it. Fuck em.
1: So beautiful. Uh, do we want to end there or one more?
0: If you have one more last one on a positive note. Though I love that you think that's a positive note, me being like, fuck them.
1: Well, you said you now understand the world.
0: Yes. I with do grace. I do all of it with grace. I do. I, I, I forgive everybody who was, yeah, they're 12 years old. Like everyone was a prisoner of where they came from. And so like, I don't, I actually have zero blame for it. But it's funny to me that they recast it sometimes, like they're my friends. Now, some of them, honestly, there are so many kids who were nice to me, and like people have reached out. Like Andy Patrikov's couple friends were very nice to me too. Like this kid, Alan Price, um, because he he wrote me a nice note recently, and whatever, John May wrote me a nice note recently. It was <laughs> been nice to me. So like there are people that I understand, um, but I'll just say, by and large, it was it was it was it was rough for me.
1: Uh. So misunderstood. Okay, a final one. Um, you've accomplished so much. What's still on the dream board for you? What's your mission?
0: My dreams are just. I mean, I think you know this. It's like really for my my one. I want Amy's projects to go really well. I'm so happy for her that she's making stuff and 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 writing. And I want everything you and Sammy like your. I I focus a lot on your, you know. On, on, just that uh, I want you to feel fulfilled and I want him to feel fulfilled um, and that's real if anyone out there if you're a parent you know that that's like uh, a legit thing and then creatively for, for, for David and me I want this next season of Billions to be awesome I can't believe I get to work with these people, these actors and these directors and I want I can't wait to do the next thing that we do together you know I get to go to work every day with my best buddy and someone I respect and admire so much. And, um, and, and so while I don't have a, I, I look, I, for a long time, I needed to prove something. I do not feel that. And I haven't felt that in a long while. And it's nice not to feel like I'm doing any of this to prove something. But what I, I still love to tell stories and find worlds that I become obsessed with, that's like a joyous thing to be able to throw yourself in and to immerse yourself. Yeah. And then on a human level, the never-ending pursuit to just try to glimpse at the understanding of the world someone like said guru has would be nice.
1: <laughs> well, you have so much grace already.
0: Uh- I love you, boo. Thank you for doing this. And I love your gentle mocking. Everybody, you can uh, find me not on Twitter anymore, but you can.
1: uh, A lot of people wrote in saying that they were very sad about that for what it's worth.
0: I know. I I wish to return someday. And just for the record, all I said was I was taking a hiatus. People reported that I said I quit. I deleted the app off my phone and I said on there, I'm taking a hiatus. But the hiatus is still fully um, in effect. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on TikTok. TikTok. Uh, everybody. Anyone whose questions I didn't answer, send it in again and I'll try to get to it next time. Anna, Rose Koppelman, I love you. Thank you for taking the time to do this.
1: Love you too, dad.
0: All right. Bye. See everybody.